When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to episode three of The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, the disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello, rabbit holers. How are we all today? Very good. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Nice to see you, Kat. Likewise, and great to be back. So we've got some brand new topics. And I should say that both Charles and I have now won an episode Mm -hmm. each. Yes, thank you. So Richard, you're sort (laughs) of... It's not really about the winning though, Kat, is it? It's about shedding light, I think, rather than a sort of undignified scramble to get to the front. I think bronze is a lovely colour in terms of medals, isn't it? (laughs) I think bronze is a very nice colour, thank you. This is sort of three. Somebody has to be at the top and somebody at the bottom. Well, if it's all top and bottom, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. You'll be very happy then. Well, (laughs) we'll see how we get on. But I think Bearing all of that in mind, maybe um, we should let you go first this week, just to sort of get you started. Would that be helpful? That would be very helpful and also very apt. The last going first. Well, no, actually I'm talking about baptismal fonts. Yes. And what is a baptismal font but a means of initiation? So to get things going, I can tell you a little bit about them. Because obviously they're a thing I deal with a great deal in the course of my work. And if you go around baptising people, then you tend to get close and personal with fonts. But the story of them is actually rather fascinating because they're an artefact that we probably all know and have associations with and maybe indeed have been baptised in ourselves. But it goes right, right, right back to the very early days of Christian history. I mean, the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, of course, is the event from which that all flows, flows, advised use of that word. Mm-hmm. And at first we think baptisms were done similarly in streams or rivers and then after a while as christianity kind of gathered to itself an institution and a structure and all that kind of thing and a doctrine and a liturgy then it began to get a bit more focused so the first i think probably the first ones we have were from the catacombs Mm. in rome when they were just sort of basins carved into the tufa in which people were baptized now you go to a christening now and you think of a seemly gathering of friends around a font with maybe a family christening robe brought out and the knees up afterwards the first baptisms were much more serious than that and the catechumens the people to be baptized they were all adults because you had to be an adult to assent to it were kind of put into a kind of 40-day purder and instructed in the mysteries of the religion. And they were indeed mysterious. They were not, that knowledge was not permitted to be shared beyond the realm of the catechumenate. And then at dawn on Easter, the bishop would take them into the baptistry, which was a building specially built for baptisms. They would be naked and they would 
descend into the waters of rebirth, often through total immersion into a pool, sometimes into a sort of paddling pool over which water would be poured. And in that, they would be buried with Christ in his death through the waters of salvation and then reborn. Very, very powerful image. Still used, of course, in some denominations. You can see total immersion baptisms. I was in the Holy Land recently, and we went down to the River Jordan, and there are lots of very earnest American Christians being baptized in the River Jordan. Goodness, uh, they've gone there specifically for that. Yes, under the watchful eye of the Israeli Defence Force, and then <laughs> only about 100 yards away, the Jordanian army. So teenagers with automatic weapons looking on. It's a very unusual experience. But for most of us, I don't know about the customers in Norway, I imagine it's not that different, Kat, but for you and me, Charles, it would have been a baptism, usually in the parish church, where you would be taken to the font, and then the vicar would um, pour water over your head three times, perhaps using a shell, with the words, I baptise you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I saw last week, I saw a painting of St. John the Baptist being baptised. Yes. So who, who was the first person to be baptised then? Well, that's very unusual, actually, because the, the kind of original image, if you like, is of John the Baptist baptising Jesus, as the story in the Synoptic mm-hmm. Gospels. The best guess of historians is that John the Baptist was an Essene, which was a sort of radical Jewish sect, common around the beginning of the first century, around Qumran, which is where the Dead Sea Scrolls come from. And they had a sort of monastery there, and they lived in some sort of community. But we know from the archaeology, there's lots of cisterns and culverts and drains, that lustration, ritual washing, the mikvah was a big thing in their tradition. So that's where we think that might have come from. But as in most things in Christian history, over the centuries, it gets refined and refined and refined, and you end up with something a bit more seemly. The baptism font that we know as Western people who are familiar with Western Christianity, is usually made of stone, it's usually ancient, and it's usually near the door of the parish church. The idea of the first thing you do when you enter a church is see the font, because that is your point of initiation into Christian membership. Often they're arranged now with the font at the west end, and then an ambo, which is a lectern, and then the altar at the east end in a line. So you get this sort of sense of a progression from initiation to the word, to the sacrament, if you see what I mean. And the fonts we have in England are kind of fascinating because they're different kinds. They're the Aylesbury fonts. They come, you find them in Buckinghamshire. The seven sacrament fonts of East Anglia. You get the Bodmin fonts of Cornwall because people cherished them. If you think about it, it's the place where you bring your child to be baptised. And so they're, they're hugely significant in the life of a community and often used to express theological ideas and so on. What's the oldest one we know of in this country? Do you, Are there any really old ones? Oh, I don't know what the oldest one is, but we have Saxon fonts. And some you get Hinton in the Hedges. There's a beautiful kind of old tub font there. Bricksworth. Bricksworth. Oh, well, Bricksworth is one of the greatest church. Saxon churches. Yes. North. yes. Yeah. And what is the most common shape of a font in the West? Octagonal. Octagonal. Do you know why? Is that no. the shape of a baby when it's lying? I mean, is it, it's a, well, sorry, it's, you don't want to... No, I just don't know why I said that. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> access. Is what, so in the old days, if it was total immersion and it yes. was adults. But when we got into the custom of baptising babies, which happened quite early, then obviously you needed to have an adult holding That's the right. child so you could That's lean right, over, sort of what I meant, which is yeah. why they're the, the shape they are. Mm. But octagonal to symbolise the eight days of creation, the seven ah. days of creation, and then after the resurrection on the eighth day, oh. a whole new creation. 
the eschatological day, as we say. And what about godparents? I know it's not your subject of the week, but when did that morph from being a... a it was almost a singular duty, wasn't it, early on? It was a legal obligation. For, yes. I mean, if you were a godparent, then you did have a legal obligation to care for the child, especially in the event of the death of parents. So it was not just an honour, but a considerable duty too. Well, you must have seen that. An enormous number of your Anglican baptisms. The godparents are just good mates. They're not good Christians. They have to take promises, actually. So what what happens quite often now is that we will have people will ask to be godparents who belong to a different faith. So this is a matter of legislation, but so I would make people honorary godparents because I couldn't make them godparents without if if they were Hindus or Muslims or whatever. But I would say more the merrier. I'd say. Did I tell you my godparents' story? No. It was I was doing I was when I was at St Paul's Knightsbridge and I was baptizing a baby and I looked up and one of the godparents was Tony Adams of Arsenal in England of whom I'm a huge fan and I nearly dropped the baby and I sort of went oh hello Tony I really like your football or something um, but anyway that's by the by celebrity godparents celebrity godparents yeah. but the font is they tell you what you need to know about the state of play of Christianity in a given moment so in the kind of 18th century they became very sort of I don't know, a kind of sketchy little font. Hmm. The custom for, I don't know if it's in your family, but in lots of aristocratic families, babies would be baptised at home. If you were a royal, the Archbishop of Canterbury would come around and you'd be baptised hmm. in, I don't know, a drawing room or something using just a sort of pedestal Yeah, mine were at home. You had a chapel at home? Uh, yes, which is an unusual adjunct. Yeah. Right. And we didn't use a font, we used a bowl. Yeah. Which is allowed, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, all you, the, the oddest thing I've used for a baptism is a surgical pipette. And that was in the <laughs> so does that not really matter care. then? Is there no religious importance to those objects? Well, yes. I mean, yes and no. Mm. So necessary for a baptism, all you need is the intention mm-hmm. and then the water and the threefold um, in the name of the Father. I baptise you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mm. Anyone can do it as well. It's not a job that only a oh. priest can do. So anyone can baptise anybody. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't know that. And baptisms are valid across the denominations, although some people would argue about that. Could you baptise yourself? That's a good question, Charles. I don't know. Someone will know. That's an interesting one. It's probably in the catechism. I should read it someday, probably. Mm. It reminds me of my, my stepfather was in midget submarines in World War II. And one of the submarine surgeons he worked with had to take out his own appendix. Really? Can you imagine that? You're down at the bottom and there's no one else who's going to do it. So he had to do it with the local anaesthetic, took his own appendix out. Well, I'd rather baptise myself than do that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to choose. And do you have any facts about that disembodied voice? There is no knowledge of the oldest font or the original font in England, but... The oldest font still in use is at St. Martin's Church in Canterbury, which, Richard, I believe, is the oldest church building in Britain still in use as a church. Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> old. Okay. It was built in AD 597. Yeah. And to Charles's question about baptisms and whether or not a person can baptise themselves if there was nobody else available, uh, the Catholic Church says that nobody can baptise themselves. Self-baptisms, also known as auto-baptisms, are automatically invalid and anyone who was initially baptised in this way would have to be then baptised unconditionally by somebody else. I should have known that. Fair's fair. I've never had to baptise myself. The honours were, were done for me before I became active in the ministry. I wonder if you can... The, 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 I remember the, the baptism with the pipette was a premature baby. I think it was 26 weeks. Goodness. And we had to go to paediatric ICU. Yes. And just take a tiny little pipette of water and baptise the baby. That's rather magical, actually. It was lovely. Who's now a thriving, lusty young lad running around finding, playing football. I'm Fantastic. Was there a competitive 
building of these objects? I mean, if you were the neighbouring village and somebody had a fantastic one, did you get the carver to make you an even better one? Often the carvers would come round as a team and you would hire them. So why you get round Aylesbury, you get similar looking fonts. In East Anglia, the Seven Sacrament fonts is probably partly to do with that. The real competitive thing came with font covers. And particularly in the sort of 15th, 16th centuries, font covers, which are an enormous, there's a huge one in Durham Cathedral. It looks like a spire of wood of a very, very ornate Gothic church. Mm. And initially that was legislation. So in, I think the 13th century, the papacy started reserving water in the font. So they became lined with lead, so they were impermeable. But that water, which of course had magic properties, had to be kept away from people who would take it for nefarious various ends like witchcraft so they were lockable covers and these covers became another very common feature in christian bits and bobs they became more and more ornate so that i think it's 40 foot at Durham. there's a huge one at ufford in suffolk and actually a survival of the 15th century which i think is about 15 feet Goodness. high and they were picked up again like compa for example and others in the sort of revival of church architecture at the end of the 19th century started building font covers too there's a lovely one at Wyndham Abbey another thing I suddenly thought of was you get spoons as well don't you because I know they're found as of the Viking site in, in Sweden a really early one that has a baptismal spoon yeah, that's come from really really far away and it's been imported yeah is, is that I mean, all that stuff, all the kit starts to require a sort of obvious significance of its own. But in England, the custom is to use a shell. So often mother of pearl or often silver, the shell being the symbol of St. James, the symbol of the pilgrim, and a reminder that what's happening when you baptise this baby is that this baby is, as we say, starting a journey. Oh, no. (laughs) And then in the Eastern Church, they do, I went once assisted at a Romanian Orthodox baptism, which is, Amazing total immersion. The baby is covered in oil as slippery as a fish, and then you have to pass it through the water three times, total immersion, and the priest breathes. I think it's called exaflation is her name, breathes over the water, representing the breath of God, the Ruach, over the waters of creation. It's a very, very rich thing because it is so significant. It's our point of entry. Kat touched on this, the christening spoons, but you see them, they come up an enormous amount on on auction sites, etc. Would would a family have kept its own baptismal spoon or, or what, what well, would I be I think those were given as gifts weren't they oh, to, I the, see. to the child like we would do a napkin ring now but I don't know but the custom for a long time in England certainly is to use the shell well a very long time ago I can date it to about 30 odd years ago I went to interview Melanie Griffiths I can't remember what she had just made and I mentioned that we'd just had a daughter and she sent her a spoon a silver spoon as a really? gift so that still goes on so I trump your Tony Adams with Melanie Griffiths I well, think well I mean Melanie Griffiths not really great in defence, John. <laughs> We'd all said done. Can you give us your favourite fact, though, in your going down these rabbit holes about baptismal fonts? My favourite fact was the restoration of Findon's font to its rightful place mm. after serving for 300 years as a cattle trough. That's so lovely. I like that one. That was a good one. Yeah. yeah. So I think we're moving on to me next this time. Well, I'm so glad you volunteer for that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, I just thought. Because as someone who digs stuff up and interrogates items of the past to tell us stories of value in the present, I would like you to look, if you please, at London Bridge. Yes, no, I 
really like this one, actually. Partially because, well, obviously, I'm going to have to touch on the Vikings again. So any excuse, it's I so think, sad to do that, we will, we'll, we'll get to that as well. But also because the nursery rhyme London Bridge is falling down. It's probably, I think it's the first song I learned in English when I was a tiny little Viking myself. Axe-rang Viking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was quite fun. I was quite disappointed when I first came to England and realised that London Bridge is not Tower Bridge. And I think mm. lots of mm. tourists... I think most and, people think that. Yeah. Can I ask, why was London Bridge falling down? Or well, was it not? <laughs> so, a lot of times it was falling down at all mm-hmm. times. So I'll get to that. Uh, the nursery rhyme, we don't quite know which falling down of the bridge that refers to. And that's part of that the sort of exciting story. Because the rhyme in English is first referred to in the 17th century. But there's lots of other European versions of more or less the same, but just with a local bridge. With their own bridge. With their own bridge, yeah. So there's a German version, there's a 16th century French version, 14th century Italian version as well. So they all got the sort of same, obviously bridges fall down a lot. But the Viking link is, uh, actually, if we go to the 13th century Icelandic sagas, there is a saga story of one of the the, the Vikings, uh, somebody called Olaf Haraldsson, who becomes the king of Norway later on. This is all in the time of uh, them battling Ethelred the Unready. So right at the beginning of the 11th century, in 1014, the saga actually talks about the Vikings pulling down London Bridge, sailing the longships up the Thames, throwing ropes around it and actually pulling it down and falling. I didn't know that. Yeah. Is that right? Did that happen? So we think, I mean, it's in the sagas anyway, so there's you quite a few Vikings. sources. Yeah. Well, they were sort of fighting so over London at the time of the Swain Forkbeard and, and then Knut later on. So this actually getting London Bridge was a really big part of that. So, so did the Vikings take London? Yeah. I should so, know this, shouldn't yeah. I? So I, I know, I knew about York, but I didn't know they came all the way down. Here. Yeah, so up to digging London quite a few London times. wasn't the capital then, was it? was Winchester the capital? <laughs> sort of, yeah. I mean, there wasn't, it was a, it, it varied a little bit. So London was sort of quite separate for a while. So they were managing to take quite a lot of other parts and then London put up its own resistance. So it was very back and forth. And eventually taking the bridge was part of defending the, the whole town, really. And there's, uh, there's actually, and that Olaf, interestingly, later became Saint Olaf. And there's loads of churches dedicated to St. Mm. Olaf, mm-hmm. including one at one of the ends of London Bridge yeah, yeah. in Southwark. There's Quite a common, St. Olaf's Bridge, and that's the one who helped pull down the bridge. But how many people in Norwegian history are called Olaf, Kat? Quite a lot. <laughs> not, it's probably not very popular anymore, but it's the patron saint of Norway, so it's quite a popular one. Lots of Olaf. Um, but it's but, also around there, in Southwark and where London Bridge was, that the Anglo-Saxons made their last stand against William the Conqueror. You know, everyone thinks that all bets were off once he won at Hastings, but there were sort of stages where they they fought a rearguard action and one was just where London Bridge is. And didn't they go out and meet him at Berkhamsted? They did. It's so unglamorous. I was on the train this morning and you stop at Berkhamsted and you think... It's just a place near Tring, but actually it's a very historic site. That's where they did the formal surrender. I once rehomed a Dachshund there, so it has sentimental... (laughs) But I guess with bridges, I mean, they're hugely significant, aren't they? Especially if it was the only bridge over the Thames. Everybody had to use it, right? So London Bridge was the main or the only crossing for such a long time. So the later ones, these, these were early wooden bridges, and then the first stone bridge was built in 1167. So that was the main London Bridge. First large stone structure sort of bridge in Britain. 
hugely important for hundreds of years. It had buildings on it, hundreds of buildings, Which shops. Which is the footfall. Yeah, so it was it was a business. It was a sort of trading, mm. you know, mecca, really. Like uh, the Ponte Vecchio in, yeah, in Italy. Yeah, so same, same exactly. idea. Exactly. There's very few of them. There's one, I think there's only one left in England. You know which one that is? It was Pulteney Bridge. Pulteney Bridge in Bath. I was yeah. going to say that. It's in got... Bath. I was there last week. Yeah. Well, I'd rather beat you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's got shops on this still. I was only going to say the bridge in Bath. You've got the full name. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't right compete. <laughs> but it had a massive sort of people and uh, it kept falling down. There were lots of fires in the early 1200s. There was a massive fire. Allegedly 3,000 people died oh. in the fire. It kept being rebuilt quite badly. It had stocks. It had a cage for offenders, including and apparently also a licensed Lady Apple seller, which they think might be to chuck out the people in the stocks rather than eating oh, fantastic. the apples. Because it, was, it would have been the place where everybody went, wouldn't it? Yeah, so, so everyone had to go yeah. across, so it was a huge businesses and things. How do you build a stone bridge across the Thames? That is a good question. I'm not an engineer. <laughs> but it is, I mean, it's part of the problem. Only the disembodied voice would be able to yeah. help us on that So one. They, were, they were, yeah, I think that's part of the reason why it kept falling down was because it is quite it's an amateur job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was very expensive. It kept being repaired. Um, there was an earlier one that was right at the start of the 1100s. It got caught up in a storm. So William Rufus, the son of the conqueror, oh, had yes. to fix that one and took new taxes of the Londoners and they was really unpopular from fixing this this bridge. And that becomes a theme of the next few hundred years. They keep having to fix this bridge. But it yeah. also had, up until the 17th century, London Bridge used to display decapitated heads on spikes of yeah. criminals. So there were rows of them, including some quite famous people. Do you know any of of the heads. Well, didn't they dig up what was left of Cromwell and put him yeah, up there? Yeah, Thomas Cromwell. Yeah, William the Wallace, Thomas More. These all had oh, their heads. Oh, they were there. So anyone who on was on, on the treason. Yeah, so right until the 17th century. Imagine that being your job. Mm. Arthur, we've got a couple of heads for you to They used to up. boil them. So you cut it off and then boil it. So all the flesh would come off. Yeah, sometimes. This is a hang, drawing and quartering. And somehow, I don't understand that side of things, but I think it would preserve it for a bit. And then the old adage, I don't know if it's true, but the old cliche is that the ravens and the crows would peck away at the flesh when you'd just be left with the skull. I know that um, a friend of mine is the parson in the Tower of London at St. Peter and Vincula. It's not the parson, it's a royal peculiar, you know, it's a pretty... But after a body had been beheaded, if it was a body of status, they would sew the head back on like Charles I. That was done on his kitchen table. I mean, it's still the kitchen, the table's changed. But imagine that. Would you mind just putting your muesli to one side? We're just going to sew the head on this (laughs) king. How extraordinary. So that was to help them on their journey to the next life, was it? Or or out of decorum? I don't know, to make them proper for burial or something. I'm, not, I'm sure it didn't happen to everyone. Most people who were beheaded at Tower Hill were buried under the flags in St. Peter and Vincula. Anne Boleyn's there, Thomas More is there. It's interesting, you know, because you think of execution with an axe as a really quick and easy way to go, but a good hanging was quicker and painless. I spoke to a surgeon in California who said you'd be in the most unbelievable agony for perhaps five seconds if, after your head's cut off. You know, you'd still have sensations going around in your head. You have these stories of people being guillotined and and their mouths moving. It's in shock, apparently. I don't, I'm don't. i not a, a medic myself, but apparently you would feel, your brain would register extreme agony. Well, there's one of Lavoisier, when he was guillotined, he asked his assistant to count the number of times he blinked, and it was 13 times, I can't yes. remember. But you would actually be... Well, you still have some yourself, oxygen in the brain. But presumably the pressure would fall very... I don't know. Oh, well, you're talking about like seconds, a, but I, I think, uh, but she was saying an, an unbelievably agonizing five seconds, whereas a common burglar or a thief in the Middle Ages would just be dropped. And as long as it was a good break, you'd be out straight away. Yeah. 
And they do things with the sorts of burials where they take the head and put it in the wrong place. So you're saying about putting them back in the right place, but there's also lots where they, you might put the head between their feet so you get these graves with the, the heads there, but it's put in the wrong place. So presumably that's a, a, a very strong message that they're not allowed to be in the right place. Well, it's sending a message, which is, I guess, why the head's on pikes. So yeah. And we're just well, a that's... reminder of where power is, right? Mm. Yeah. And, and then the king. Just, so... Splice them up as well. So... Uh, Montrose, who was one of the great royalists in Scotland in the Civil War, he had upset everyone, mainly by being victorious. But when they they chopped up his body, they hanged him as a sort of insult to his nobility. They didn't let him have an axe. And then they cut his head off and then split his body into four and sent it to the four great cities of uh, Scotland, each to be hung over the gateway. And, and it, it was... In a superstitious age, you know, by distributing the body too, you were making it almost impossible for it to have a, a decent afterlife. Yeah. Presumably the, the executioner would need to be a butcher, I guess, wouldn't you, if you were going to do all that? Well, the most yeah. famous execution ever in this country is Charles I, and we don't know who swung the axe because they wore a mask and they didn't want to be identified. Well, I was wondering, because when Charles II, when the Restoration happened, if you had been the person who actually dealt the blow... Yeah. They might have sought some kind of restitution. Maybe. My theory is that it was actually the executioner. He was very God-fearing and he was seen, it's rather like being caught in a cab now. He was in a ferry going across the Thames afterwards in tears about what he had supposedly done, but nobody knows if it was him. To strike off the head of an anointed monarch would be a yes. big thing. Mm. <laughs> now, the, the other thing about London Bridge, Cameron, is it got sold. Yes, so this is the next part of the story. So that that old one that kept on falling down, eventually it got too expensive to keep trying to fix it. So they decided to just tear the whole one down, build the new London Bridge, which opened in 1831. That didn't last very long either, only for about 140 years. And they decided to build the one that's there currently. And then they, of course, had this actually perfectly functioning bridge and decided that to get rid of it, they were going to sell it. So they dismantled it piece by piece and it shipped over across the Atlantic. And do you know where it ended up? Is it Florida? Not quite. Was it the West Coast somewhere? It's Arizona. Oh, right. Places. What's it doing Goodness knows why there, but it's now um, essentially a tourist attraction at uh, in a place called Lake Havasu City. And you've got the new London Bridge, which is the old London it's Bridge. The old new London Bridge. The yes. old new London Bridge, so you can go and see that. It's um, interesting because all those, think of those urban myths, don't you, about con artists selling people <laughs> yeah, so London got Bridge or Tower bridge. bridge. I yes. wonder if they thought they were buying the Tower Bridge or but something more spectacular. Do you think that's one of the great disappointments for yeah. the visitor to London, is realising that London Bridge is not Tower Bridge? I, am still, I still feel disappointed by that from being <laughs> about 11 or something like that, because it's actually not very exciting at all, the, the current one. For London Bridge, though? Yeah. Then all of a sudden, these other bridges started throwing themselves impertinently across the Thames. Yeah. And London Bridge rather lost some of its prestige. It did, it did, because mm. it was the only one. And that's also partially because why it had all the businesses going across it. And it was defending the city for quite a long time as well. So one side was defended. And then suddenly about three or four or five of them sprung up and it lost us shine. It's interesting that the code name for the Queen's funeral was London oh, yes. Bridge. That's yes. so true. Good yeah. point. So, Sorry, I've taken your point. There. No, fell down that rabbit hole as well. That's a good <laughs> so that was, that was the London Bridge. They were all, so the first from 1952, the death of King George, that was giving the name Hyde Park Corner. Oh, but I see. So they go for very English things. Well, originally, yes. And then they all went for bridges, apparently, because they were chosen to represent the move from life to death. 
Oh, okay, that it. takes us, of course, back to baptism. It's yes. a passage over or through the waters of death, which leads to the eighth day. Yeah. And life beyond this life. That's very good. So I quite but like that, that. So water's always been involved in that passage, as it were. I mean, even if you go back to the the myths of Rome, yeah. you know, that water's always been an essential part of life, of course. Yeah, but also specific, I mean, Christianity from Romans 6, I guess, specifically as, in fact, we say in the rite of baptism in the church, really now, we are baptised into Christ's death because yes. then we can enjoy the resurrection. I think we have a fact coming up from our disembodied voice. So I'm not a bridge engineer, but the foundations of London Bridge were constructed by ramming wooden stakes into the riverbed and then infilling with rubble. The piers at the end were built inside what are known as coffer dams and Kentish ragstone from the River Medway, Purbeck stone from Dorset and Rygate stone from Surrey were all used with 19 broad pointed arches ranging from 14 feet to 32 feet in width. It was for many years the longest stone bridge in England. And one other fact is that a few lasting remnants of the old London Bridge actually exist in London, one of which is built into the tower of St. Magnus the Martyr's Church on Lower Thames Street. So the original... Hmm. Recycle, recycle, recycle. Oh, and there's a sculpture uh, at the current London Bridge, which is a sort of huge spike-like thing. It's called the Southwark Gateway Needle. And lots of people think it's to commemorate all their heads on spikes. But apparently that isn't true. Apparently the angle is at a 19.5 degree angle pointing to that particular spot where the original bridge was. So that that sort of last remnant... I don't know. I quite like the sort of yeah. commemorating the spikes heads, but it's interesting what they did with the bodies too. You know, with these criminals, and there was a sort of common pit for throwing bones into. So you mentioned Oliver Cromwell earlier when he and two of the other regicides were dug up and posthumously hanged again. Their bodies were then thrown into the common pit. How do you posthumously hang someone? You just haul up what's left? Yeah, they broke open. So they were the senior people who were involved in judging and executing Charles I were in the turn during the Commonwealth, you know, in the 1650s. They were buried in great state in Westminster Abbey. And then Charles II took great pleasure in having the tombs broken open and then they were dragged to Tyburn, near my Marble Arch, and hanged in public, even though they were decaying. And in, in some that job, some terrible jobs <laughs> in the seventeenth century. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> drag the decaying body of the Lord Protector of England, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, Tyburn. mad. Mm-hmm. I think actually the first Battersea Bridge was built by the Spencer family. You built a bridge, yeah, and then they built another one. Someone else built another one near it, so you could make money out of it too. So they had land in Battersea. A commercial enterprise. It was a commercial enterprise. It was for ease for them of access to their London Southern estate or whatever. And then after that, you could charge people for going across it. So you had a chunk of, well, it wasn't London then, I guess, was it? Or Battersea? not really. No, it was outside. It was a village. Oh, rather missed the boat there, Charles. <laughs> St. Mary's Battersea was still involved with that. Is that one of yours? Yeah. You mentioned Operation London Bridge as the name of the funeral plan for Queen Elizabeth II. Do you know what King Charles's funeral plan bridge name is? Luton Airport. That's not a bridge. No, um, <laughs> I think it might be the fourth bridge. No, it's Operation Menai Bridge. Menai, of course, oh, Wales. Wales. Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah. Cat, what's your fact, your favourite fact? So I think this is really interesting. The vintage lamps on London Bridge now are made from melted down cannons from Napoleon Bonaparte's army. Everything's made of a melted down cannon, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Victoria well, Crosses, aren't they melted down cannons? I think they are from Sebastopol, wasn't it? Probably like Probably more. Yeah, you've got to use them for something. <laughs> yeah. Well, Wicksteed Park, 
you know, the swings and slides of Wicksteed Park were repurposed um, armaments made for the First World War after the armistice. They needed to do something with them. So that's how slides and things, fairground rides began. Well, on that <laughs> note. <laughs> yes, I, you're moving on to me and Would I you... have death at the centre of my offering this week you have actually so we've been we were quite glum this week aren't we yeah <laughs> we asked you to talk look at war diaries so yes so when you set me this i thought oh well i know a bit about that because i've studied quite a lot of military history and i was thinking of the soldiers and officers who kept a journal probably for themselves you know in the olden days but what i hadn't appreciated was that this became standard issue from the late 19th century, the British Army actually instructed each unit to keep its own war diary from the Boer War onwards. And it was seen as a way of getting a first-hand account from the front of exactly what your unit had done, everything from deployments through the weather, through casualties. And then that would all be sent home. And it was very difficult to keep on top of it because some regiments were better than others. Some thought it was just a, a real bore to have to do this when they actually had the more important business of fighting. And others had scribes who really enjoyed lingering on the page. The pages and pages from the artist's rifles. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The one I referenced when you sent me this was this wonderful man called Captain Blackadder whose diaries I came across from the early 1700s, he was a very lugubrious Scot who looked upon life as a sort of eternal penance before you actually went to suffer in the afterlife. And I want to take you back to, in history, to 1704. And it is the first time that a, a British army is operating with some distinction on European soil since 1415, the last major victory we had was Agincourt. But there's a hint in the air that the Duke of Marlborough, Winston Churchill's great ancestor, was going to pull off something remarkable against Louis XIV. And you have to remember also, Louis XIV hadn't been defeated since the 1640s. But Blackadder put in his diary, this is like to be a campaign of great fatigue and trouble. <laughs> uh, that's how he kicked off the joy of the campaign. And then when they won, they won one of the great battles in English military history, Louis XIV, humiliated on a field in Bavaria, most perplexed because he thought he'd been thinking that they were all going to be killed because God didn't like the British very much in his view. But how could you equate you know, victory, which is God given in his view, with the fact that there were an enormous number of British casualties at Blenheim? And we find in Blackadder's diary, perhaps it is that our cause is good and therefore God gives success in our enterprise, but our persons are very wicked and therefore he leaves us strewn as dung over Germany. He's a ray of sunshine, this guy, <laughs> yes, isn't he? Yeah. It's so Calvinist that. But I love it. And also, I, you see, when you look at these diaries from the past, you also get a real glimpse of the different social lives, the social strata of the people composing them. So this is the first time I've come across privates writing, etc. But I also love, there's a, a, a French aristocrat, the Count of Marode Westerloo, who is woken up on the morning of the Battle of Blenheim. Then the French are just not expecting the British and their allies to engage. And he's surprised that his groom has come to wake him up earlier than normal, because he, he likes to be woken up at eight for his hot chocolate. And then he writes in his diary, the Count of Marode Westerloo, this fellow, Lefranc, shook me awake and blurted out that the enemy were there. Thinking to mock him, I said, where, there? And he at once replied, yes, there. 
flinging wide as he spoke the door of the barn and drawing my bed curtains. The door opened straight onto the fine sunlit plain below and the whole area appeared to be covered by enemy squadrons. But I love it. He went on campaign with his four-poster and his groom looking after him. I mean, it's a, it really is the aristocracy at war. It's quite bonkers. Hot chocolate for breakfast. Hot chocolate for breakfast. There's something about Waterloo and about people sort of bringing their family and people you know, having a sort of... Do you remember that the, the first major battle of the American Civil War was watched by all the ladies in, in, in carriages watched on the hill? Really? Little realising that hell was about to be unleashed with the, the way that rifles and muskets had, had progressed in that period. And it was an absolute carnage. It was the first mm. war of carbines, wasn't it? It was that you yes, could breach load. And- that's right. Well, as in any civil war, you get huge casualties. But the American Civil War, I think they, they lost about 700,000 men. Wasn't it for, as a proportion about the worst ever for casualties? I think it's it was worse than they... There's more than they lost in the First, Second and Vietnamese War combined. Maybe. I mean, that's the other thing I love about war diaries, the few I've read. The gap between these kind of huge epochal historical events mm. and then people talking about the cat being sick. Yes. It's, it's that weird domestic texture isn't it to these huge events i love the domestic side and also the real eye for detail there's there's a man called quincy Ayres who is an officer in the first world war for the americans and he wrote just this beautiful line it's remarkable how the birds still sing in the war swept forest and you see this man on the ground you know in this hell still seeing nature at its most beautiful popping its head up occasionally I think our disembodied voice has another fact on this. Uh, Charles, you were right. The civil war deaths, 655,000 Americans lost their life in the civil war, 364,000 from the US Army, 290,000 from the Confederate Army, which is 40,000 more than World War I to the Korean War and Vietnam combined. Astonishing. Is that because they were just, it was the tactics were of pre-modern warfare? Well, our our English civil wars as well are are the worst bloodshed we've ever had in this country, worse than the First World War in terms of percent of population. Why is that? Because it mobilises more people. Well, no, I think it's because you don't have an off-season. If you look at wars in the past, you had a campaign season and a non-campaign season. But if you're at war with each other in the same countryside, you're going to be at it 12 months a year. And do you think something about the narcissism of small difference, that because you're close, you're more vicious? Well, I think particularly in the American Civil War, they had no idea how good their musketry was. You hear about these battles where it it sounded like a beehive had been upset. That was the whistling of so many bullets. You know, it's just carnage. Like the first day of the Somme, interlocking machine gun fire, and generals not knowing any better than just push people forward and they got mown down. That's right. They walked forward. They didn't even run. And then... Yeah, well, 60,000 on the first day, I think. 60,000 casualties, not dead, but I mean, still, 60,000 casualties is extraordinary, really. There's other things, you know, you go back to the way diaries, war diaries, have become very important aspects of cultures. Some things have taken on a life of their own, including the war diaries of a man called Admiral Yi Sun Sin, who is, if you said those words in Korea, people would snap to attention. He's one of their greatest military leaders. He was a 16th century admiral. And what I love is by knowing about his diary, which is considered one of the 75 most valuable objects in Korea uh, and is a part of the UNESCO Heritage's Voices of the Past, you learn about just such a different way of living. So this was a man who joined officer training school 
and was doing okay. He came top of archery and then broke his leg and came bottom of cavalry. And so then has a sort of rather quiet career as a junior officer, an elderly junior officer, before showing that he's spectacularly good at fighting and attracts the horror and jealousy of people who are above him. So they frame him for desertion and torture him nearly to death, imprison him. He's then released, rises up to the top of his chain of command, again attracts this terrible jealousy, is imprisoned, is tortured terribly, uh, burning, cudgeling. They break his legs and terrible things, trying to kill him, actually. But then he becomes the great, great hero and has this wonderfully almost Christian battle cry in 1597 when the Japanese had invaded, where he tells his admirals and captains before this battle, those who seek death shall live and those who seek life shall die, and encourages the 13 battleship fleet of the Koreans to defeat the 133 ships of the Japanese fleet in one of their great victories, which ended a seven-year war, the Imjin War, which brings the, the Koreans out on the right side of history. history. Military history is full of these extraordinary tales, aren't they, of against all the odds, people in the right spirit with the... Just uh, getting the moment right. Leader, getting it right, yeah. And, that, and lucky enough... See, one of the things... Is that, that history being written by the victors? Though? I mean, what you might get in the diary is yes. a less inflated view of what's happening. Because well, also, you have in war diaries, I think we had to broaden the scope to the victims of the Holocaust. Of course, we, we could do several programmes on Anne Frank's diary. But there was an intellectual called Kaplan who lived in Warsaw. And his diaries are beautiful, both in terms of script and content. A description of Warsaw before the ghetto, an increasingly ghastly description of Warsaw during the ghetto, when suspicions start to arise as to how things are going to go. Bad news from the war outside, even worse news about what they gather the Nazis are, are planning for the, the Jews interned in the ghetto. And he lives as long as he can until he realises he, he's had it. And the last thing he writes in these beautiful diaries, which cover such a scope of terrible existence, is, if my life ends, what will become of my diary? So he knows he's writing for posterity. Luckily, somebody hides his diary and on a farm in a kerosene can outside of Warsaw, and they are preserved. But think of the countless diaries that people have written that haven't, we don't know what happened to them. They, they were destroyed or they didn't survive. Interesting, the sort of bias you get then, isn't it? Like which sides, as you were just saying, is it yeah. the, the victors and which sides do you actually get? Yes, well, there are the diaries of the Holocaust which have been accumulated and the Holocaust Museum in, in America, they have a full index of them and they are really painful to read. The Germans on the other, you know, the Prussians were the first army to make it absolutely obligatory from the 1850s. They kept a, a series of diaries and it was repeated each war after the 1850s that... Every German unit had to keep its record of what it had done. Prussian record keeping. Yeah. So is that actually then also dictating what should be in them? So is it a very specific formula of what yes. they're reporting? Well, in this case it is. So the Prussian Minister of War, a man called August von Stockhausen, he ordered that all commanders of major units should keep war diaries. And he wanted all significant military actions in there, relocations, important messages and orders and casualties, material losses, all of that sort of thing. These became part of the Prussian military regulations. And the Prussian military set the tone for the military in the First and Second World War. The Prussians were seen as the cream of the cream of the German army. In 
Viking culture, presumably people kept records of great battles, great victories, great conflicts written by the victors, I guess. Yeah, but not written down. So they're all oral histories, basically. And we have these poems. So some of the ones, in fact, one of the ones we talked about with London Bridge earlier, one of those records is from a poem, a praise poem written for Olaf. So you quite often get, after these successes, you get these skulls and these poems that actually commemorate these events, but they're not. They're but not. If you're down. supplying a raid, presumably someone must keep a tally yeah. of what's required. A quartermaster of some kind. I mean, that's another. It's not exactly a war journal, is it? But it's an account of what happens in war. It might tell an interesting story, right? There must have been. We don't have the, any written records, but we, we know things like you know you get paid. You get paid by in silver, and you get given arm rings. So there must have systems and ways of showing you know who belongs to whom and, and all of that. And we don't know that only from the whole period. But then we have so in England um, something like the the Battle of Malden, which again sort of late tenth century battle there's an old english poem that describes it so the actual event is in the anglo-saxon chronicle it's got like a really quite short entry just saying this battle was fought and giving the, the sort of bare bones of it and then we have this incredible long poem that's more or less contemporary that describes the whole thing and it it says what both sides are doing what the leaders are doing and they have the sort of standoff across the sort of river or a, a body of water and the, the sort of english side and the, the viking side they're, they're sort of shouting at each other and sending messages across there's they sort of come up with their horses and then they send the horses away they've got a falcon so you get these amazing details that you never get from that period but you wonder you know all those individuals as well and what all those are the same stories if you did have letters. I wonder if literacy has eroded glory. So That's the accounts that we had in the point. past were written mm. by people in charge and yeah. often the victors. And they would write, perhaps with models from classical literature in mind, in a very sort of consciously heroic sort of way. And then with the rise of literacy, what happened is that people lower in the food chain. So I wonder if you get a very different, more textured, more granular account of war from that. And also mm. during the action, as opposed to with just with hindsight, because yeah. those are the bigger accounts. That's afterwards when you know what, what the outcome was. Yeah. But if you're getting the diaries, you're getting it as it happens, aren't you? I, I think it's so interesting, though. If you if you look at Richard's point, you know, if you're hearing from the ones who aren't commanders, they're the ones who are just having a rough old time at the front. In fact, going back to that Blenheim campaign, you, you keep hearing about the from the private and the captain and the sergeant, you know, they're, they're marching down towards Bavaria and they're being hit by hailstorms with hail the size of musket balls. And that brings it alive. And another one saying, oh, the women are much handsomer here than we were led to believe. And it, you can relate that. I think good history should be relatable to the modern mind. You know, you want to see yourself in the, in the story. Completely agree. And can we just finish off with your favourite fact about war diaries, Charles? I think my... Favourite actually is I, I read a bit by my father, and he he was involved in the Normandy landings in in the summer of 1944, and he liberated a, a town called La Neuvelier in Normandy with eight men, and he wrote in his diary, after several hours there, it was time to move on. Enough wine, women, and song, and I love that so much unsaid. I just think they had quite a good time. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So we've got to the, the final part. So each week, our disembodied voice, our producer, will completely undemocratically choose a winner. So who's the winner this week? I almost gave it to Richard, but Charles's fact at the end was so good. <gasps> <laughs> I mean, it was very difficult. There were all three. Oh, I could see you wrestling with it. Yes, yes, beads of sweat on your forehead over that one. So yeah. Charles is the winner. 
Oh, well done. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. As a very uncompetitive person. Yes, thank That's you. That's not really Famous quite true. Though, I look at yeah. you too. I look at you too. I think the three of us are so ultra competitive that you're still trying to look generous in non-victory. I'm post-competitive. <laughs> <laughs> like that but before we go we have to decide on next week's subject so first of all charles you are going to be going down the rabbit hole to investigate the tie the tie how fantastic yes i do know a little bit about that excellent thank you and richard i know i I like this one i'm gonna enjoy hearing you talk about this one motorway services (gasps) oh my goodness that is brilliant what and, and that's such a good combo but what about you, Kat? Yeah. So the one that I'm going to fall down is the treadmill. That's oh. going to keep me going for a while, isn't that it? That is. That is. I can see that working well. <laughs> Excellent. I do like the variety. And that's really good. I, I know the, yeah, when I think of the tie. Cra- well, you've got a thing to say about the tie. Well, I do know one thing. What? Cravat or cravata comes from Croat. So the Croat cavalry in the 17th century wore scarves given to them by their wives as warm sort of totems. And that's where the cravat comes from. When I was a precocious child, I asked for and received... You're still a precocious child in all our minds. I'm still a precocious child in (laughs) there, but when I actually was one, I asked and received a burgundy silk cravat for I think my 10th Christmas. It's like living with Fraser, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That's a kind way of putting it. (laughs) Well, then we know what we're going to see you wear next time. Well, I don't wear the cravat, but I might dress up. Right. Well, so. Let's have a look. Well, I can't wait to hear it all. So thank you both. That thank was you. very good fun. And thank you all to our listeners for listening to us. If you're listening, please do leave us a review wherever you found this podcast. And do let us know about some of the rabbit holes you'd like us to go down in future episodes. We'd love to hear what people think we should be spending our time talking about. So finally, in the words of Lewis Carroll's Alice, It's no use going back to yesterday. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.